All right, you're listening to NYC Radio Live. I'm backstage with Zizol Slapovich. Uh, we just learned that Zizol, well, you can tell us. Well, Zizol Slapovich. Zizol is a Yiddish name, which means sweet. Basically, it was my great grandfather's name. It's um, of famous musicians. Bob Dylan's Jewish name was Zizol. And you said it could be both male and female. Correct. All right, and your band, the band is called? Litvakus. And from what I understand, you guys play the hits. Yeah, well, we play um, uh, no, seemingly obsolete music that uh, as an ethnomusicologist, I was, I was fortunate to find it both in archives and doing field work in my home country, Belarus, uh, in the um, 2000s, uh, right before I moved to the States in 2008. And, uh, you know, we put it on stage, we put it on films, we put it uh, in theater, we put it everywhere. And we infuse life in the music that was killed in the Holocaust. And it's extremely fun and hit, hit music to play. And it, we, we were excited to see how people relate to it and then how we relate. We, the modern you know, musicians, modern people relate to it today. Today, it was pandemonium. <laughs> right? I mean... Uh, yeah, everybody was going absolutely nuts, and like I rec- I recognized one tune, which is why I thought you played the hits because I recognized the Heiser Bulgar, which well, it, was, it was a proto Heiser Bulgar. It was a uh, Heiser Bulgar was conceived probably was probably say conceived rather than written by uh, Naftali Brandwein, uh, who's an emigre from Odessa to the United States who came here around early 1920s, uh, maybe 1919, and um, but that was the uh, the first part. Of that tune was traditionally played at weddings. I mean, that was from the 19th century. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah, it's a, it's a wedding. It works like this music. Because uh, I had a background. I was a wedding DJ. I did over 200 weddings. So when music works, I really appreciate it. And and this a lot of the tunes that you selected for tonight, they just they work. I guess that this music was. Um, you know, approbated by uh, at way more than 200 weddings in uh, back in Eastern Europe, and it was figured out what exactly works and in what way. So the these the tunes were actually recorded in the 1920s and 30s when the you know ethnomusicologists started taking um, uh, phonograph um, the wax wax cylinder machine on the road. So it was right before the Holocaust, and it was in the uh, you know upheaval of urbanization when this tradition already started. Um, kind of to vanish gradually. So, uh, but it obviously dates back to the uh, heyday when this music was uh, sounding all the time and everywhere in uh, urban areas and smaller urban urban areas like shtetls. Shtetl is a no smaller urban setting and villages. Uh, so, it definitely had a quite a long track of approbation in the field. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So these guys are playing it, and they. Well, is a musician uh, a traditional and accepted and respected job amongst families in the shtetl? Like that was a, a decent gig, or was it looked down upon by the more religious folks? Well, quite the opposite. Um, it was a um, kind of a known dichotomy uh, of a, of a love uh, of a kind of aesthetic urge uh, that people had, and uh, uh, one of the ethnomusicologists who recorded a lot of this Jewish folk music, Moisey Berigovsky, was writing that people were leaving their jobs behind them and running like crazy when they heard a 
klezmer band, a traveling klezmer band who would en entering the town to play uh, an event, uh, supposedly a, a wedding. So that was clearly that was their Philharmonic Hall. That was all they had. On the other hand, uh, when I teach Yiddish, you know, and then I talk about Jewish music to my students, I say, you know, I start I started my class with a saying, Yiddish saying, "Dochterkes is nicht a is a klezmer." Daughter, it's not a groom; it's a musician. <laughs> this saying says it all. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. You know, it was not a stable work. I, we sing. I, I sing a song that I recorded in Minsk about Mendel Parikmacher, Mendel the barber. Uh, so apparently, it was about the barber who had a famous klezmer band, his family klezmer band with his three daughters. So. Obviously, had this double occupation, which was sanctioned in the society. Unlike being a musician, yes, everybody knew that his band. I'm mean, literally translating this lyric: is the best band out there. But still, he's a parikmacher. He's a barber. He had to kind of justify his, you know, his being in the society. Ah, so yeah, it gives you a little more. A barber, a barber, a tailor. These type of jobs were. were yeah, yes, any lay people or a rabbi or any like you know uh, clergy, uh, that kind of so somebody who served everyday needs of community and musicians like you know, they were needed once in a blue moon when the oh, weddings were not every day. So and there was no gigs in the synagogues. No, sometimes rarely so, uh, but really rarely so because people just could not afford it. Again, from from the interviews I made with many people, like older people. I would ask them, do you remember musicians? No, it was such poor families. We just put a, a patiphone, you know, with a, with a record already in the 30s. We just danced to that. We couldn't afford to hire a band. So that was the reality. People were really living really poor. And so you've discovered, uh, you've been digging through these old recordings. What are you learning about the, the lyrics of the music of that time? I mean, you know, the, the lyrics represented all uh, all sides of life. I mean, you know, work, work, and uh, you know the kind of holy side, the you know the Shabbos and uh, all the holiday Jewish holidays, and uh, even the you know the um, con conversion. The in our other program we do with the Berlin-based singer Sasha Luria called Goyfriend. Uh, the, there's some schmad balades, uh, converts ballads. Uh, so we do like half of that is uh, some mocking songs of the Gentiles, you know, addressed at the Jews. Like, do, look, look, those funny Jews, they don't eat pork, something like that, like in Latvian. Uh, uh, so that would be the lyrics of the song. It's, that would be uh, the lyrics of the Gentiles people's song, the Latvian and Polish. And then the Jews would, you know, retaliate and they would sing something about the, the Goyim, the Gentiles, like, look, they're... The, the gods have hands, but they cannot, uh, you know, do anything with them. They're, you know, they're they're mute. They're basically just idols, and our god is living. So they were just you know, mocking each other, although living, living for centuries, living along with each other, and sharing these cultures and co-shaping co each other's. And that's the whole idea of that. So the lyrics were all about, you know, the everyday life and themselves and their neighbors. You know, and just like today, I guess. You know, is there like a, you know, in some traditions, there's like a body song tradition, totally irreverent stuff. I imagine maybe there was music like that, and if if there was, what was anything recorded that was just, uh, you know, particularly irreverent? 
nothing was uh, too inappropriate. There, there were in, inner like, internal wars in the Jewish society itself. Uh, so there were deliberately inappropriate lyrics aimed to criticize or ironize at uh, another group. So, for example, Hasidim uh, were, I you know, mocking the Misnagdim, the Litvaks, and the vice versa. And there were songs, the same repertoire, that was migrating from one camp to, to the other. Uh, you know, there's a song like... Uh, I'm such a good chassid, I'm such a devoted chassid. And it was used as an irony, as a parody. On a, it's an anti-chassidic song. And Wait, I'm such a good chassid. What? Like, what was the example of, of when they had the mocking lyrics? Like, it was not explicitly mocking them, but like it was ironizing. I'm such a good, self-righteous kind of, you know. And it was, so, so it was more about the manner of performance. Interesting. And how about, I mean, I feel that there's a lot of humor just baked into Yiddish itself, uh, or at least, yeah. So were there, are there, there are other like kind of comical kind of, songs that you've, you've unearthed? Well, we, we, when we talk about the uh, kind of pre-revolution, uh, uh, pre-World like War I tradition, like early, or the early tradition, uh, I think it's not as much of a... Well, the humor was perceived as a tool of overcoming the difficulties of uh, really hard everyday life. So it's kind of that kind of humor which was finding songs about all kinds of occupation, occupational songs. You know that I'm I'm having nothing, I'm earning nothing, like you know a, a, a dollar with a hole in it, but I'm having fun from this life. Uh, you know, or um, I retaliate at my uh, hostile uh, landlord with some kind of joke or something. So it was like overcoming hardships of everyday life. It was really that kind of thing. So what what are your what are your like goals with the 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 recording project and you know what 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 are you trying to cuz some projects people are like this is my own take I'm going to take this but blend it with uh you know uh, whatever indian music or I going to do this or I going to do that uh like what what's 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 like your angle what's what's driving you to to push the project forward well, this particular project, Litvakus, uh, we're focusing primarily on the Belarusian, Lithuanian, Litvak Jewish musical tradition. It was um, my discovery. Uh, I was really taken away when I heard the rare tapes, the, not, not the tapes, the wax cylinders in uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, when I heard the manner of the, of the performance, it was something very different. So I realized we have to... You know, bring it back. To, we have to not just bring the repertoire. A lot of that was pan-European, pan-Eastern European repertoire, but also the manner, different instrumentation. We use the shams, we use the, some double reeds, and we use a different, a, lo a lot of um, like uh, sympathetic um, uh, drone strings on string instruments. So it's 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 very ringing, very droney sounds, which corresponds with that of the Belarusian and Lithuanian and Eastern Polish traditions. So. Uh, in other words, every local Jewish tradition was uh, heavily shaped by its surrounding, by its, and I think that's a big project. There's a, there's a lot, uh, a lot of repertoire and uh, a lot to discover there. Although it's it's long gone, that the heyday of that tradition. But I think 
that it's worth just this keep keeping discovering their blogs, like Yiddish Song of the Week, uh, online where people submit, uh, including myself, we submit our tapes and um, liner notes about uh, folk songs recorded decades ago uh, or recently, and it's it's a treasure trove, and uh, there are songs from that region as well that have to be interpreted, that have to be represented again. And so so it's really a lot. And like three summers ago, I spent two months transcribing over 100 tunes from wax cylinders from Sofia Magid's collection, which I'm planning to publish. And uh, we're playing uh, just a handful of those so far. And are the, is there a project to digitize all these wax cylinders? Is that underway? They, are digi they, ha they were digitized by the Russian Institute of Institute of Russian Literature, the Pushkinsky Dom at, uh, in St. Petersburg, but they, uh, for you know, for legal reasons, they cannot be put out there in the free access. Unfortunately, they, they, uh, the, the, uh, the, the staffers, the professionals who work there, they want to do it, but they cannot. Um, so that's a whole other thing. So there, there are scholars and there are musicians who access those collections and who take them on stage, who make publications. You know, basically, you know, make them uh, accessible by uh, all kinds of audiences. Wow. So where, where do people start if they're, this is a whole new world for them, Jewish music in general? Where, where, do you, where does somebody just, where do they dive in? Is there one, like, artist that is so irresistible or...? or? No, there, there isn't anything one in anything Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> very noisy it's very multi-phonic or polyphonic you know and uh, of course there are many Jewish traditions many Jewish ethnicities and uh, you know many Jewish languages over 30 Jewish languages most of which are extinct uh, by now but but still there they were recorded and uh, those musical traditions were recorded so um, uh, you know there, there were there are anthologies um, that present those collections, uh, those uh, record those traditions. Like um, um, Hebrew University uh, in Jerusalem puts out this series of um, uh, Jewish tradition, musical traditions in diaspora. So there are about 30 CDs with books that came out there. Uh, there was the Bet Futsot, the Museum of Diaspora in uh, Tel Aviv. They also put out, uh, they had a music center, also put out about two, two dozen of CDs that represent different Jewish traditions from India to Caribbean to Europe to everywhere. You know, so the, so I, I would recommend if, if somebody is really de dedicated to explore that to, you know, to look up uh, the, the collections of Hebrew University at uh, the Museum of Diaspora in Israel. But then there are so many others, and uh, if you look up Klezmer, you know there are so also so many publications, good and not so good, and uh, frankly bad. <laughs> you know, I can't recall all of them by by heart, even good ones. But it's a whole ocean, ocean of things, and it's developing. It's it's living. Like we are sitting here today, we're making something today we're taking it somewhere by playing it for the new audiences some of whom probably have heard it for the first time in their lives i had this moment where you know we're at a golden fest and there's the balkan dancing and the macedonian and the greek and and there's always people who like know what they're doing you know and and, and they even have more status if they're from the ethnic group and basically 
there was no one and during your section that there was no like clear leader of of of, of those dances. And I had this moment where I'm like, wow, this is one culture I can take advantage of because I'm Jewish. So I'm like, hey, it's like this. Da, 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 da. You know, so that there's a liberating element to actually studying one's own culture in that you can't be accused of appropriating it, right? Well, yes and no, because this, you know, this, this music was created with a certain uh, dances in mind, which we don't know. Dances are the worst recorded uh, medium of art. The, even the, when there were wax cylinders and tapes around, there were not videotapes, so they were not available to ethnographers. So dances were not really recorded, but you, you make a great point. It makes this accessible. I, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't limit it to just one ethnic group or a religious group. It's, I think it's not right. It's right to own whatever you do. I think that's the key word to what everybody's doing at this festival. They own whatever they do. That makes it really authentic and genuine. And I, you know, let me just say, tell you, I'm, I try to you know, not get into politics, but it's a really kind of hard moment for me what I'm, you know, what I'm witnessing. This whole talk about cultural appropriation, it's really disheartening. Because what cultural appropriation really is when somebody is taking advantage of of a you know, underserved, disadvantaged group somewhere, and they're selling their, you know, uh, making money on them while they're impoverished, in, in, living in poverty somewhere, in, like say somewhere, right? And this is something else. You know, this is about sharing, and this is about disseminating the culture. And everybody can participate in any of it, in Serbian, in Jewish, in Belarusian, and you name it. It's, it should be open for everyone. You know, There's no cultural appropriation here. Not, not possible. Co-creating and recreating that, and we're participating in it together. Well, amen to that. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Great set. Um, and what, are there any other projects we should know about that you have going on? Well, I uh, also have um, a trio, uh, Zisel Slepovich trio, um, and we are playing improvised music uh, based uh, on the roots music and early music, um, and with uh, Nadav Lev on the guitar, Dmitry Ishenko on the bass. Roots music and early music of who? Uh, uh, in general, we, we, take, we look at different sources, primarily European and uh, early European music or early Western music. And we do like improvised music, uh, take it to take it place. Early, how many centuries are we talking? From uh, from late Renaissance to Baroque, and uh, traditional roots music, as in you know Slavic and uh, Balkan and uh, French, uh, Norm Normandy, uh, etc. And we improvise on that, so we play um, a set on February 1st at the Dive Bar, uh, 2662 Broadway, uptown. Uh, we do that. Nice. Um, well, uh, I've just um, recorded um, an album uh, for uh, the Yale University Fortune of Video Archive of Holocaust Testimonies. It was a fascinating project. It will be out soon. Um, so basically, I was sourcing out the songs and uh, poetry in the Holocaust survivors' testimonies. Uh, a lot of that is really heavy stuff. And I was arranging it, sometimes composing music with just poems and artistically re representing it with my band and uh, with Sasha Luria. Uh, from Berlin, and we just recorded that. We'll be out on an LP, and we'll play a concert in uh, at Yale, New Haven, on March 30th, and I'll play a concert in New York. 
which is not set yet. That's it's another fascinating project I've been doing. I'm also playing in the Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof, uh, playing uh, half a year in Museum of Jewish Heritage. We're moving uptown, uh, so if uh, you know, if you didn't get a chance to see it, or well, you did and you want to see it again, we'll play uh, Stage 42, um, you know, beginning February 11th for 20 weeks uh, up there. Fiddler, Fiddler auf dem Dach uh, in Yiddish. Oh, it's a Yiddish version. It is in Yiddish. It was translated 50 years ago by Shraga Friedman in Israel. And it was a total fiasco then and there. And it's a smashing success now in New York. Well, thanks for your time. This is fun. Thank you so much. Man.